Please be seated. And if you would turn your Bibles to the book of, man, I got so many of these things coming to me now. This is awful. This is awesome. My, my pocket is loaded. I don't know. I feel like I have to have some sort of addiction statement. So I will talk quietly and softly because I've learned that helps. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look in, starting verse 50 through 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we do have some available in the foyer. Please pick one up. Um, just encourage you to use the scriptures. Um, paper Bibles are great. Recommend those. If you don't have one, use the one on your, on, on your phone. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. This is the word of God. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. May I add his blessing to the reading of it. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we ask that you would give us insight to your word. Father, we want to know what it means to walk in Christ and what he has done and fully comprehending and living in that. And so, Father, lead us and guide us as we do that. Thank you for your word which speaks to us. And, Father, help us to apply it to our lives individually and in our families as we hear it today. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, no one likes to lose. No one likes to lose, and that's why many people will cheat in order to win. They want to win so badly, uh, and they want, they want to avoid losing so much that they're willing to break the rules just to get some little advantage. I was researching some, way, some of the stories of cheating in sports. It's crazy what people will do. One international bicyclist uh, put a tiny little motor inside of her bike and so that when she would be going uphills, that she would have just enough little help in order to get ahead of the rest of the pack. I've read of a couple marathon runners, and you may have heard this, and they, they skip out on the bulk of the race by going on a train or traveling to the end of the race somehow, and then amazingly jumping out of the crowd and then going on to finish that marathon just ahead of the next competitor. I even read of a Spanish basketball team that pretended to be mentally disabled so that they could enter the Paralympics and win themselves a gold medal. These are true, true stories. And many, many of you know the story of the uh, uh, in women's Olympic ice skating 
when American Tanya Harding hired a bounty hunter to injure her fellow American competitor, Nancy Kerrigan, by hitting her in the knee just before the 1994 Skating World Championships. Now, we know of these things because they were all caught. For example, Tanya Harding and the next one um, ended up eighth place in the Olympics where the person she injured ended up second. Um, but we don't know those who don't get caught. But it, but it does show one thing. It's just, you know, we, we, people don't like to lose. They like to win. I doubt if any of us likes to live with the inevitability of loss or the inevitability of defeat. Depending on what the stakes are, it can either leave us with a sense of dread or it can even lead to a sense of pointlessness. You know, the sense that your nation is going to lose in a war, versus nation is inevitably going to lose in a war, it leaves a whole nation in a national depression. The inevitability of losing a sports season can be discouraging and it requires a good coach just to keep everybody together and the focus of their, their mission together. And how many family members have even quit family board games just because there was no way they could possibly win? So that I'm out. Anybody else do that? Well, faced with the inevitability of loss, a person may ask, what is the point in pressing on? If it's pointless, why try hard? There are reasons. There are good reasons, but they can be easily forgotten. Well, there was a false belief that was circulating in the church of Corinth, which left them with that same sort of discouragement, a sort of pointlessness to the things that they did. So what was that false belief? That false belief was their rejection of the doctrine of the resurrection. They rejected the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of all of his followers. We've been looking at that over the last few weeks. This is our fourth week looking at 1 Corinthians 15. If we go back all the way to verse 12, we see where the problem is framed. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some are saying the resurrection was impossible. Over the past few weeks, we've seen first the fact of the resurrection. We've seen the importance of the resurrection. We've talked about the resurrection body last week. Well, this week, we're going to look at the victory of the resurrection. Because as they doubted the resurrection, it was affecting the choices that they were making. I mean, if death is the final say in their lives, then each one of them would be a loser in the end. There was no, nothing after death. How could life have any meaning either? It ended up empty, nothing, depressing. If life is all there is, why not just live it up? As verse 32 says, is their becoming their attitude of some. If the dead are not raised, let us eat or drink, for tomorrow we die. So even the Corinthian Christians, they uh, began as they embraced, some of them embraced this. They were surrounding themselves with questionable people. They were pursuing immoral behaviors. We can see in verses 33 and 34, we see what some of the things they're doing. It says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, and then do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So it looks like some of them had developed this attitude that, well, if I'm going to die anyway, if the, the loss is inevitable, then I should just have as much fun as I can along the way. It was a modern belief system today, uh, which is called nihilism. 
Nihilism is the belief that basically all is nothing or all ends up nothing. I'll say this, it's the predominant worldview of almost every television show, modern television that you'll see. It's all kind of pointless, and so let's just create some sort of meaning for ourselves. And then if there is no point, then why worry? Just enjoy life. Now the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church to show that since Jesus has risen from the dead, then they can know that they also will live again. And that means there's a connection between this life that we have and the life that's to come. And if that's true, then there is, then what we do in this life infuses eternity with a great deal of purpose. Because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, we don't live as those who, who will lose. No, we, we live as those who have the victory in Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection is our victory. His resurrection is our victory as we believe and trust in him. We love to dwell in victory. I mean, the satisfaction of winning a game can carry us for a while. If it's significant enough, we can remember it for the rest of our lives. Congratulations, a shout out to our baseball. Our Forest franchise won the majors, our Maroon won the minors. Congratulations, I know that you all played well. But I was thinking about that. We're just going to sing the doxology over and over and over today. <laughs> I, I just came up with that plan. So it's great to go into a game knowing that we should win if we work hard enough through it. It's nice to be the favorite to win. I don't know if you've ever watched professional wrestling. You know, the big burly guys, and they go into the ring, and they do kinds of, all kinds of acrobatic moves and flips. I used to watch this all the time when I was a kid. And if you've ever seen it, you know it's all staged, right? I mean, if you didn't know that, now you know. <laughs> but they learn how to do all these moves um, in a way that reduces the chance of injury. But, you know, truth be told, I would not want to get in the ring with any of them. I wouldn't want to be pile-drived or suplexed. But, but part of the script is that when they go in the ring, they also know who's going to win. And all they got to do is play their part. To the winner, there's an inevitability to the outcome right from the beginning. Since Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, we also have that inevitability of victory. Yes, we need to step in the ring. Yes, we need to be part of this work of faith. But when we do, we are able to fully enjoy it. Because as we love others and as we love Jesus Christ, as we set aside our selfish desires, we know there is a resurrection that's ahead. We don't live like the Corinthians, where we live with death as the victory. Death, death is not the winner in this. So often our doubts about what Christ has done, can it hurts our faith, it hurts our lives, it's our decisions. It leaves us with a less than victorious life. It leaves us with unresolved guilt, unresolved grief, and it sets our hopes entirely inside this world when we should be living in the victory of the world to come what Jesus has done. So we choose to dwell in Jesus' victory over death. How do we do that? That's what we want to look at today. The first thing we see is that this victory is not from ourselves. This victory is not from ourselves. We see that in verses 50 through 53. If we're going to walk in victory, then we need to know where victory comes from. And verses 50 through 53 shows us that we don't look inwardly for our victory, but we look outside of our hope outside of ourselves from the hope that comes from Jesus. Verse 50, it says, I tell you this, brothers, 
Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. There's nothing within our bodies that can inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the point. You can't stay as you are and have that hope of heaven. You and I, we've been created to live on this earth. Adam and Eve were created to live in the garden. They were created to live in the presence of God on this planet. And as we know the story, Adam sinned. He plunged the world into death. And if he wouldn't have sinned, that we would have lived in a kind of worldwide garden, paradise on earth, with the joyful presence of God, uh, surrounded by everything good. But he sinned, and when he did, everything fell into death. And as each one of us has also chosen to sin, uh, we see that our whole person, our body and soul, has become defiled. We're reminded constantly of the curse of death, of the reality of decay, and we're groaning under the sufferings of this world. And that's all that we have, a broken, sinful, condemned body that's useless unless somebody helps us, and unless someone does, we're hopeless. So in this way, the Paul agrees with what the Greeks are saying. They say the body can't go to heaven. He's saying, you know what, you're right. They say, how is it possible that God would allow a finite body in heaven? He even says, Paul even says it's a mystery, if you look at verse 51. It's something that's not readily apparent. We might even wonder. But here's where he changes things. And sure, this body can't go to heaven, but God gives a glorified body that can go to heaven. We talked about this last week. Verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So the answer answer to them is the resurrection body. Answer that mystery. God will create a body that's fit for heaven. It's not something we can give ourselves. The solution doesn't come from us. But God changes us. God changes his people through faith. That's what he does. We see when it's going to happen in verse 52. Happens the trumpet sound of the return of Jesus. Read this. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. The last trumpet there is a reference to the return of Jesus. You know, trumpet is that sound of, of, of victory. It's the warning sound of a charge. It's of an approaching army. The sound that startles an enemy. And notice what, when that happens, that there's an instantaneous change. It's in the twinkling of an eye. Some who are alive when Jesus returns will just simply be changed. Those who, they, they're not going to die. Those who've already died, who said, will be raised. So for all of our lives, if we're following Christ, we may work to become more and more godly. We call that sanctification. It's a process that we go through. We believe that in this life, as we follow Jesus, we should see growth in Christian virtue. We should be more loving. We should be more kind. We should be more peaceful, more patient, more self-controlled. But even as we see these changes happening, we also see the ways that works of our life is still incomplete. We don't become perfectly virtuous in this life. But that's the encouraging word of the trumpet sound. Because at that point, the work is finished. I think I've referenced 1 John 3.2 over the last three weeks, but it's worth looking at again. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So that, that's when we see what the new body is like. It's imperishable. It's immortal. It becomes like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.53 says, For this perishable body, 
must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. See, to be imperishable, sin must be removed. Remember what God said to Adam in the garden? The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It came down to us as well. So for death to be removed, sin also has to be removed. That's the work that he's doing. And so just like a new body, eternal life is not something that we generate for ourselves. We do not blow the trumpet. We do not give ourselves grace. We cannot produce a new body. These things don't come from within us. But the world tells us that if we're good enough, if we do enough right things, if we don't break any big commandments, then we deserve to go to heaven. Well, the Bible's clear. Again, nothing that is good comes from us. Our condition apart from Christ is described in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We see, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So you see, there's no hope that's within us. You can't go to heaven as you are. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't even cheat your way into heaven. I mean, the good news, though, is that that's not the end of the story. We can't cheat our way in, but there is a way that we get in that we don't deserve. There's a way to get in that we don't earn. It's called grace. It's a gift to us. That hope's outside of us. It's in Jesus. That leads us to our second point, that victory is from Jesus. What we need has been clearly provided by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. I love the songs that we sang today because they really spoke about the finished work of Jesus. Oftentimes we can say that Jesus died for our sins. We can talk about God's grace and the blood of Christ. We can forget one part of that is that when he died for us, he completely died for us. We forget that word complete. We forget that word finished, because when Jesus died, he gave us a complete victory over sin. He didn't just die to put a down payment. He didn't just die to get us started. He didn't die just to get us halfway there. But when Jesus died, he rose again from the dead. He completed the work of salvation for his people. He completely paid for the forgiveness of sins. That victory is in Jesus. I want to look at Romans 8.30 here. It says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You can see the progression that's there. Predestined means you were known before time, known by God and planned for salvation. Called, called to believe in Jesus, not only in hearing the gospel, but also in the inner call of the heart to, to receive and believe in him. This is justified. You know, that all the sins are forgiven. They're taken away, accepted as perfectly righteous in Christ because all of his righteousness has been given to them, imputed to them. It's complete. And then look at that fourth word, glorified. Usually we think of this as something that's going to happen in the future. But what tense does it use here? Notice it's a past tense word. It's still future, but Romans 8.30 speaks of it as something that's a past event. I mean, that's how certain this victory is. It's as certain as the past is certain. It's as if it's already done. Look at verse 54. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, because it shows us how this happens. 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Eternal life is described like clothing here. Do you see that? It's clothing that we just put on over our perishable bodies. It's the clothing that makes us uh, fit for heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, 2-4 speaks of how much we want this. It says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So you see that in the resurrection, you know, the mortal body actually gets swallowed up. To the believer, it's, it's, death doesn't swallow us up and take us up, you know, but it gets covered in life. So what's this heavenly dwelling that covers us? Romans thirteen fourteen says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see is, what we put on is the righteousness of Jesus. He alone has gained the right to go into heaven and he clothes us in the robes of righteousness. And in doing so, death is swallowed up in victory and the sting of death is taken away. Look at verse 55. It says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You know, you get this glow, you know, you get this rebuke to death here. Don't, I don't know if you see that. You know, it's like death is gloating here. Death is gloating. I have my victims. You know, I have these people who are all afraid of me. You know, I've won. Not only have I won over those who've died, but I'm winning over those who are still alive. And then you have this verse here that's given. Really, death and all of his gloating arrogance has its, has its victims taken away. Death is one of those most painful experiences in our lives. And as I wrote that down, I thought that was funny because, of course it is, because then you're no longer living the next moment. It's like Yogi Berra once said, make sure that you go to the funerals of your friends or else they might not go to yours. <laughs> but death, death is painful. And I'm not just talking about your death. I'm talking about the death of your loved ones. You know, that's the sting that... Christ that God has taken away. It's our own, the fear that might come there, but it's also the sting of our loved ones, fellow believers in Christ who've gone on to be with the Lord. See, death no longer has the victory it thought it did, and while death may hurt, it doesn't last forever for the believer. It doesn't win, and it's only temporary. In order to take that sting away from death, Jesus took that sting upon himself. He did that by fulfilling the requirement of the law on behalf of his people. Verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. You know, what is it that causes death? The Bible says that sin is the cause. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Death is the result of sin. Adam's sin has been imputed to us, and so is the root cause of death. We die because of sin, and we die because we sin. But notice also says, the power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law. What is that about? Here's, here's the point he's making is that sin is energized by, by the law of God, by the rules. The sinful nature is such that hearing a command from God, it tells us not to do something. When God's law actually tells us sinful desire not to do something, it actually creates in it a desire to do that very thing. The sinful nature is drawn to the forbidden thing. You can look at Romans 7 to see a description of that. 
So no matter God says be content, no matter that God says come and worship, that remaining part of the sinful nature rebels against that commandment of God. Romans 5, 20 and 21 says, now the law came to increase the trespass, the sin reigned in death. So not only does the rebellious heart, or not only does does the law stimulate our hearts to sin, but also condemns us as guilty. We sin, we have the law of God that condemns us, and the resulting consequence is death. But that's not the situation, the final situation for believers in Christ. The sting is taken away. How is that? Again, Jesus took that sting upon himself. He perfectly fulfilled the commandments of God. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He died in our place. He died and was judged as guilty so that we would not have to die and to be judged. One day there was a little boy who was riding in the car with his dad and a bee came in the window. And the bee was buzzing all around the car and the, and the little boy was screaming because he didn't want to get stung by this bee. And with this great impulse and courage, the, the dad reaches out and he just grabs a hold of that bee. And he squeezes that bee in his hand. Then he opened up his hand and, and the bee flew back out and began to buzz around the car. And the boy continued to scream and the father looked back at him and said, son, you don't have to scream. He held his hand, and inside the palm of his hand was the stinger of the bee. He said, son, all the bee can do now is make noise, because I got the stinger in my hand. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus took the sting. He removed that stinger by taking it into himself. All death can do now is to make a noise. We don't need to live in defeat Let's look at this passage. Let's finish these passages, the ones we just looked at. Romans 6.23 again. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the victory that's given to us. A free gift from God. A victory over death. Or Romans 5.20-21 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace, incre- grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace abounds. Grace sins. Not sin, not death, but God's grace. And that's why he can say in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we have that victory, then our calling is to walk in it. And that's our third point today. Faith is walking in Jesus' victory. We see this in verse 58. So the resurrection shows us the things that we do inside this life matter for eternity. That's where all this discussion ends up. All of 1 Corinthians 15 ends up with this verse in verse 58, saying that how our hope in the future changes the way that we live right now. Let's look at that together. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Okay, so again, why not in vain? It's because the things that you do now, by faith, are connected with your life in all of eternity. First Corinthians 6, 9 shows us that we reap in the deeds that we do in the life that's to come. Galatians 6, 9 says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And that reaping is in the resurrection, where believers get to enjoy the fruit and the reward of faithful service. 
I love this passage in Romans 19, verses 6 through 8, when it also speaks about this. I mean, think about this as a picture of heaven, what we see there. It's a picture of heaven. John, the prophet, says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You know, in glory, we're clothed in, in Jesus' righteousness. That's the point of Revelation 7, 13 through 14. And that's, his righteousness is so perfect, it's so wonderful, it's so good, it's so clean. But Revelation 19, it goes on to show how the church is beautified by her works. And I love weddings. I love being at weddings and standing up here and, and seeing the bride come in the door. Um, you know, part of it is just her adornment. You know, all the time that she puts in in preparation for that day. And I'm caught up each and every time I see that of a, of a, of a greater wedding feast that's to come where the bride of Christ comes towards her bridegroom. You know, we may see her now in the ordinary day of life, seeing a little bit ragtag, persecuted. We see sin and the challenges that happen. We see her divisions and her sufferings. But in glory, this is what we see. The good deeds, the love of Christ, the missions work, the care for the poor, the care for the orphans around us, you know, for those who are suffering, for those who are traumatized. You know, and so as we see the works of the church, you know, that becomes the adornment of the church in all of glory. You know, and that, that's what I think about when weddings, you know, happen. Is this bride, the bride of Christ, the church. I notice it's, you know, this clothing, this described in Revelation 19, Revelation 19, is not the clothing of you and I individually, but it's the clothing of the whole church, of which you and I are a part. You and I, by our church, you and I and our church, by our works, have the chance to shine forth the glory of Christ's church for all eternity. This then becomes a foundation for pressing on. That's because the things that we do make a difference. Why not just give up when adversity hits? Why not just live for ourselves instead of living for God or for living for others? That's because, as verse 58 says, when you're laboring in the Lord, he doesn't forget your labors. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name. Or we can look at the parable of the final judgment that Jesus gives in Matthew 25, when he says, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it, 
To one of these least, these my brothers, you did it to me. So notice the connection he makes there between this life and the next. So you might not even notice what you're doing. We're not looking for a reward. We're just servants doing what we should in love of Jesus, love of our neighbor. But in his grace, God still rewards his people. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the great preacher of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And at one point of his life, he experienced the death of his wife. He was driving from the funeral with his kids. And one of them said, Daddy, I don't understand where did mommy go. I don't understand what this means that she died. Barnhouse was trying to figure out how to explain death to his kids. When just then, a truck passed by and it cast a shadow over the car. And he looked over at the kids and he said, Kids, would you rather be, would you rather have been hit by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? Well, of course, they would have rather been hit by the shadow of the truck, right? It doesn't hurt, it just darkens things. But then in his wisdom, Barnhouse says, Kids, when you die without Christ, you are hit by the truck. But when you die with Christ, you are only hit with the shadow. The shadow is all that you get. So I know that you might be tempted to give up. You might wonder if it's really worth keeping doing what's right. You might be tired in helping your children walk in the Lord or to pray for a prodigal. Maybe it's your challenge in fighting against a certain sin or to give your time and service to others. There can be an exhaustingness with it. But we have this clear promise that's given to us today. Your labor is not in vain. Your righteous deeds beautify the bride of Christ for a dwelling in heaven. It's a testimony that goes to all eternity. And God will not forget your deeds. He has a kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. And my prayer for each one of us is that we would keep our head so far in the clouds and keep our feet so grounded on this earth that we'd be able to serve the Lord and be able to serve his people. The hope of the gospel has given us something to live for. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the voice, first of all, that you gave me to finish this. Father, we, I just give you praise for that and your answer to prayer. Father, we also pray to you and give you thanks that Jesus has won the victory over death through his own death and resurrection. Thank you, God, for this decisive victory and that it becomes ours. Indeed, when he said it is finished, it was finished. When he rose, death was vanquished. The sting of death has been taken away. God, thank you that you've given that to us by faith. Take away our fear. Grow us in love. Free us to serve those around us with this in mind. We ask you, God, for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.